Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Hall of Fame podcast. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine. Joining me today is features editor Simon Aaron and two guests who many will remember from I think the funniest podcast I ever witnessed back in May 2014. James Weaver, Andy Wallace, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, for those of you that don't know, Andy won Le Mans at his first attempt and then scored three podiums and uh, four class wins there in a very long and distinguished career. Uh, won Daytona 24 hours three times, Sebring 12 hours twice. And then your stats, James, are, are, are amazing. 200 times you were on the podium in your career, 100 wins, 69 poles, 76 fastest laps, and 41 lap records with titles in Global GT, Can-Am, and Grand-Am. Um, a glittering career. So we will come to all of that in a bit. Um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Extremely kind. Um, I do, I'm afraid, have a couple of complaints about the last time you came on the podcast. Um, these are from, from listeners. The, the first complaint is that one of the listeners was driving at the time and laughed so much that he nearly crashed. Um, and then another complained bitterly that he actually wet himself at one point, <laughs> I think during your Le Mans 1986 story. So if we could just watch out for that this time and try and keep it a little bit more serious. Um, we are, obviously, the aim of today is to choose 12 nominees for the Hall of Fame uh, US racing category, which we will come to at the end. Um, you will come up with 12 names that the public can then vote on, and the, it's, it's in their hands who, who then gets inducted into the Hall of Fame in June this year. Um, so we'll come on to that in a bit. But... And I was going to come to you first. Um, I, McLaren has recently released this video of you beating the world, <laughs> the world record in the McLaren F1, doing 242.9 miles an hour. Um, it's nearly had, I think, over half a million views now, um, which isn't surprising, because at the time, I've never seen anyone so calm go so fast. Yet, I think in hindsight, the interview that they did with you quite recently, thinking back to it, you weren't quite so calm about actually doing that speed record. But what, just tell me a bit about, about it and then also you know, what you think about it. Well, about I mean, the, the thing to understand is uh, there's, there's a lot of cars now that can do 200 miles an hour. Piece of cake. That's, that's not an issue. And most racing cars, 200, 200 and a bit, and that's it. But when you start going considerably faster than that, you're into an area which is, let's say, a lot more difficult for tyres, for example. Um, and all sorts of odd things can happen when you start to go that fast. The loadings on the car, um, all the aero loadings, all the loadings, in fact, go up as a square of the speed. So although 240 doesn't sound a lot faster than 200, it really is. Um, that's the first thing to say. Did, did you know that the tyres could do it, though? 
Well, uh, Michelin made the tires. Well, no, I mean they obviously f- for me they're they're the they're the best tire company in the world, and there's no question about that. Whenever I've raced on them, I've always felt incredibly comfortable. Um, they know what they're doing. They have a a, um, a rig that they run the tires up on. They can simulate the downforce. They can simulate the speed. But you are getting very very close to the limit of a rubber tire at those speeds. So you always do these things with caution. It helps if you're a lot younger, as I was back then, because your sense of uh, sense of danger is less, uh, your imagination is less, and I suppose you're also more disposable. But, um, I mean, for example, when people do world land speed records, of course, they're not running on rubber tyres, they're on solid metal discs. So you are you are up at that, that point. Also, the car, the McLaren only had 627 horsepower, so it was pretty light on downforce and... and to get the low drag, and and the car wasn't very stable. You don't see that from the video as much, but what you should know is if you're travelling at well over 100 metres per second, just a tiny correction on the steering wheel from the, the driving point of view, from your feeling, is absolutely massive. You watch it on the video and it just looks like the car's wandering a little bit. Well, it, no, I can tell you it's, uh, it's a bit heart in the mouth type of, type of feeling. Now, at this point, I have to say, or as impressive as that was, and it was back in 1998, of course, you probably know that I, I, I am a, one of the Bugatti official drivers, and I've been out in the Chiron, the new Bugatti Chiron recently. Now, if you want to see speed, that is absolutely out of this world. And I'll just give you a couple of numbers, because I've just come back from Dubai, where we were um, fortunate enough to use the one of the runways at Al Maktoum Airport. So this is a runway... Um, it was quite windy. There's a lot of sand all over the road. So we were doing this from a standing start with no um, st- uh, no launch control switched on, just a normal roll-off speed with sand. So you were fighting for traction in the first couple of gears. In less than two kilometres, it reached its first speed limit at 380 kilometres an hour. That's 236 miles an hour in less than two kilometres on a dusty, sandy runway with absolute precision, millimetre precision, um, directional stability, absolute piece of cake. And that's what's happened in the time between 1998 and now. You can just turn the corner, have a piece of road ahead of you, put your foot down, and a few seconds later, you're banging up against the, the first initial speed limiter. And that, for me, I've, I've no, of all the racing cars I've ever driven, any car I've ever been in, I have never, ever felt performance like that. And it's incredible that it can do that. Can you, you mentioned how vague the, Mac, Mac, the McLaren felt at a Nancy 240-odd miles an hour. Um, there, were, there any, were there any thoughts going through your mind when you were doing that run of what it used to be like on the Mulsanne, on the, you know, the unchicaned Mulsanne at 200-odd in a, in, a, in a prototype? Was it similar? Um, well, the the difference being, of course, the, the Group C car had a lot more downforce. Yes, sure, absolutely. Um, but the the Mulsanne Straight has got a couple of truck ruts in it, so you kind of almost it's not quite a perfect fit, but you almost get stuck in the ruts. And in fact, to change lanes is what's difficult uh, on the Mulsanne Straight. So you, if you want to overtake a car in front that you're catching quite quickly, you put some right hand lock in to try and switch lanes. You just kept getting keep getting pushed back where you started, and then you put a bit more lock in. You go over the crown, and then if you're not careful, you go far too far to the right. So that's the difficulty there. But the same thing applies. You're still getting very, very close to, well, particularly in the, eight, the late 80s, close to the limit of a tyre. In fact, we were running on radial tyres uh, throughout the World Sports Car Championship at that point. But when we got to Le Mans pre-Chicanes, we had to go back to cross-ply tyres. They were the only thing we could put on the car that would not explode at those speeds. So 
it, I suppose it's a problem that hasn't been solved in the in the past because it hasn't been necessary to solve it. You know, there's not a lot of cars that go more than 250 miles an hour. Amazing. I'm actually going to jump around a little bit. Um, James, your first experience at Le Mans, 83 in the Mazda. Um, you only had 300 horsepower, I think, but I seem to remember you saying it had absolutely zero downforce, so it was actually extremely fast down the sound. but I... I don't, I don't think you particularly enjoyed the experience, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> the car was extremely lively and it would do 197 mile an hour. I, rem I remember that, but the, the bump, the sort of contours and the road that Andy's talking about, when you came out of Tete Rouge, we'd try and get over to the right-hand side of the road as early as we could, so the 962s could overtake us on, on the left. But the, the, it was very difficult to get one side of the road to the other without crashing. And what was even worse is it had so little downforce. When a 962 went past, we were, you know, if you blow a balloon up and let go of it, it goes all over the room. That's what our car was like. A bit like a paper plane in a gale kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could see them coming. No, 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 please don't do it. And you just sit there and hang on for dear life. And it would take you probably a quarter of a mile to get back under control again. But I think the thing I remember you complaining about most of the time because I remember chatting to you and I think Steve Soper and a couple of others in the pit lane beforehand, and you're all complaining about the fact you had to wear pink overalls. No, you, did, you didn't. You didn't mention the fact it was like a paper plane in the game. No, I, I think once once we got we set about the race, we realised pink overalls was the least, least of our problems. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I'd, before this, I'd, I read Simon Taylor's lunch with both of you um, and listened to the old podcast and things. And James, you, you I seem to remember you saying that you either wanted to be a film star, a racing driver, or there was a third thing that's momentarily slipped my mind. Uh, yeah, that was a steam train driver. Steam train driver, yeah. So <laughs> three completely um, um, s similar things. Uh, w w when did the motor racing bug first bite? Because you, you then, you obviously, against your um, father's wishes, you, you, you went off and you did um, engineering, you worked at various motorsport places, but when, when did you actually think, oh, I want to be a racing driver, as well as the film star and steam train driver? <laughs> well, it, funnily enough, it was when I was at prep school. I went to a prep school called Vine Hall down at Robertsbridge in Sussex. And um, w after lunch, we always used to have to lie on our bed for an hour and read a magazine. I remember saying to my dad, mm, we've got nothing to read. And he was uh, um, a doctor at the London Hospital in Whitechapel. And when they, they came round with the trolley, for all the patients, it had motorsport magazine on it. So that's what got me started. Dad used to send me motorsport every month. So, so we are actually to, to blame for, <laughs> for, for for you going into motor racing. But that's, that's great. I never knew that. Well, it, 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 the magazine it was then. It, it, it's probably still now. If you if you pick it up, it, it um, enthuses you. And that's really interesting. They always have great articles, great photographs. But it's amazing how some of the other motoring magazines. And they take all the passion and enthusiasm out. So I think if you were a kid today reading motorsport, it would make you want to go motor racing. I, I suppose the other advantage, I suppose the advantage of a steam train is it wouldn't have been blown out of the way by a 962, would it? It just stayed <laughs> going in the same direction. You could have you chosen that. Well, I don't know if I just like rushing around being noisy or, 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 or what it was, but I was, I was absolutely hopeless at school. And you've got all these clever people being lawyers and doctors and god knows what else and you think well why does nobody want to do anything exciting so i thought you know what are the three most exciting jobs i can think of and you know i must be able to do one of those uh, andy when did when did the bug bite for you i did can remember back uh, i lived in oxford it was 30 miles exactly to silverstone from there and i remember around seven or eight years old my dad was quite interested in racing so i would take me along to silverstone sometimes 
But he was, I, the, the bug sort of bit very early on. I decided that was a brilliant idea to do that, make all that noise and have all that fun. Um, but he, he wasn't able to take me at weekends because he was working most of the time. So I used to get on my push bike. Are you sure we haven't done this story before, by the way? Because no, no, this, uh, this I, I, well, I, I remember you talking to Simon Taylor about it at lunch oh, right. with, but our podcast listeners will, might, might not have heard the story. So do, do Well, do apologies if you've heard it before. And keep listening because I'll change some of the facts. No, I won't. No. Um, no, and I, I used to, I, I just wanted to go and watch the racing. I just, you know, for me, it fascinated me. So I got on the push bike. I had one of those sprung-loaded racks on the back, so cheese and pickle sandwich on the back, and off I'd set down the A43 with all these trucks whistling past your ear and everything. Three hours later, get to Silverstone, and I'd um, there's a little hole under the fence you could... Uh, I didn't say that. Uh, you could go and watch, and I spent all day there uh, watching until the last race. It was almost getting dark each time, and then just in time for the three-hour ride home, of course, it would pour with rain because it is England. Um, and that's what I used to do every every weekend, and I just I couldn't get enough of it. I just for me it was fantastic. Big races I went to watch were just always the British Grand Prix, either Brands Hatch or Silverstone. But I started to get really into the the smaller club meetings and the fact that it would it could perhaps be a possibility for me. I, I just think that that's great. I mean, how many young drivers today do you think started off with the love of motorsport and cycling thirty miles just to go and watch a day of racing? Well, I, there's probably not many of them. No, probably. I mean, it, and it puts. I mean, I used to think I was. You know, I used to cycle eight or nine miles from the local, the nearest railway station to Alton Park, and used to think, I mean, I was on the six o'clock train in the morning, I'd be there, you know, first first thing, but it was only sort of seven or eight miles, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the full 30, and it was country lane, so no trucks either, so. Yeah, but I paint, I paint this picture, you know, I just couldn't <laughs> wait to get there, so it really didn't matter the distance, to be honest. I just wish I'd have put two cheese and pickle sandwiches on the back, because you get starving. Did, didn't the cheese and pickle sandwiches get squashed by the spring-loaded rack? Yes, they, they did, yeah, absolutely. You have to be careful not to put too much pickle in. Yeah. Cutting-edge stuff, this Motorsport Magazine <laughs> podcast. Um, James, I'm going to sort of move over Formula 4, just because we, we talked about that in, in the podcast we did last time in May 2014. Um, but you had a fantastic year in Formula 3 in 82 with uh, three wins out of four races. And I think the second in the fourth race. Um, Tommy Byrne then took your seat in 83. What, how did that come about? And do you have sort of memories of, of Tommy? Because he's, he's, he's been sort of in the, in the news quite a lot recently with, with this new documentary on him. Yeah, I mean, what, what happened was uh, Eddie, uh, no, Tommy was driving for Eddie Jordan in 81. And it came to the British Grand Prix. And he said, um, in so many words that he didn't think the car or the team was up to much so he left and I'd run out of sponsorship because I was driving for Eurosports so I didn't have a drive so Eddie Jordan asked me to drive for him to replace Tommy which I did at the end of that year and then we had a great year the following year in um, European Formula 3 but uh, Tommy won you know just cleaned up in England I think I, I, I can't remember I must have been second to him two or three times um, uh, you know, so, I mean, just talking about Tommy, he was unbelievably talented. There's no question about that whatsoever. Well, I should have said, we've got loads of readers' questions, um, and, and so it, we will jump around a bit, uh, but there's actually one about that Formula 3 championship, um, which I obviously can't find now, um, but he wanted to know that, obviously, having won that Formula 3 championship, and with so many of the past champions having then made it to F1, um, a, you must have felt as though the world was, was at your feet. But then the second part of the question is, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, how unfair was it that you, you didn't make F1 when all these other these past Formula 3 champions had? Well, I, I don't think anything's unfair, to be honest. I mean, 
that's the, just the way things go. But you're right pointing out that all the previous champions had stepped up straight to Formula One. I actually did do a tour of all the F1 teams knocking on doors and writing letters. And I was actually, Arrows and Tyrrell both offered me um, a drive in F1. But of course, you need to find X amount of money. I think it was something like, it was all done in dollars in those days. So I think it was about $600,000 to get in the car. Yeah, when you look at yeah, when you when you look at what it costs now, um, so of course there was you know it, it we were on such a shoestring during that year of winning the uh, British F3 Championship. There was I, I mean there was no way I had any money to do that, so that that sort of it knocked me back, and I thought well I I don't know what to do now because you know where where do you go from there? You can't do Formula Three again and risk perhaps not winning it a second time. Uh, so yeah, it started to be it started to be a bit of a you know a bit of a nuisance trying to think of where to go next and. I ended up doing, um, I think we did, almost, yeah, we did do the whole year with Matric Motorsport, moving up to Formula 3000, but we had less than a Formula 3 budget. And we had so little money that, and I didn't know any of the European tracks, that rather than take an F3000 car around, which was much more expensive to run, we took the Formula 3 car around to some of the tracks I didn't know and did a, a day's testing at each one um, before the season started. And we tried to do Formula 3000, but we didn't have... Well, the, the team hadn't done it before, I hadn't done it before, and we didn't have enough money. So we, we really And you had the chassis change mid-season mid to compromise things even further. Yeah, and the chassis change was an interesting one because the car, the, it was just the March 87B, yeah, it was designed around Stefano Modena, who's a really small bloke. And I, I mean, I'm not exactly a big bloke, as you can see, especially sat next to James. <laughs> but I... Uh, I, do you know what? I could not reach the gear lever. And I know that sounds really stupid, but the steering wheel, even when you got it as far away from you as you could, so your knuckles were scraping the monocoque, nothing behind me, I could not change gear with my, my right hand. I couldn't get fifth to sixth because my elbow was hitting the tub. So I used to have to change up into fifth with this hand, put the hand back on the wheel and get sixth with the other hand. And it, it just I just couldn't drive the car, basically. <laughs> it was really, really difficult. Um, and so, in the end, what we did was, and I'd, I'd sort of, I'd, I struggled. I mean, I didn't have the experience, and, and you know, that's just the way it goes. But I, I was in the wet. I was on the front row at Spa in a wet qualifying session, I think next to Maurizio Guzman. And I ended up finishing fourth in that race. It was stopped due to an accident, and so we didn't get to the end. Then when we switched chassis from that to the Lola, Every other race we did, we were on the first or second row in qualifying. So suddenly I could drive the car and it was good. But by that time it was too late to do anything points-wise. And in fact, I made a complete mess-up of the last race, which was at Harama. And I, I led the race for a long time. I think Yannick Dalmas was behind me and we were battling away. And it got to, from memory, I don't know, 10, 10 laps or less from the end. And I managed to trip over a slow car and ended up in the gravel. So I got, lost my chance of winning an F3000 race. But um, it's quite a step up from Formula 3 to F3000. It's a, it's a completely different animal. And really, you need to have a second year at it, which, of course, I didn't have. And you, you obviously both then went into sports cars. We'll, we'll come to sort of that decision in a bit. But when, when were you two first teammates? Well, before that, I just have to say, I, I remember James doing his uh, 1982 European F3 uh, campaign and I remember sitting in the grandstands thinking God, he must be good because he was always coming around either in the lead or very close to the lead and then we actually met didn't we at, at Reynard when you were the tea boy I made you a cup of tea didn't I absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> no um, I'd, I'd uh, got to drive with Swallow Racing um, for the 85 season and they were using the 85 Reynard 
F3 car. And so generally what the teams did was send the mechanics to Reynard and they actually build the car themselves. That was the deal. But for some reason, they sent me on my own. So I was there doing the little bits and pieces I could on the car and putting the car together. I mean, I'd run my own Formula 4 car. I kind of knew a little bit what I was doing. Um, and of course, I was gasping for a cup of tea and there was James Boy. He's like, ah, oh. and that that was it. And of course, I knew who he was, but we'd never actually, our paths hadn't crossed. I think I was one of the few people he hadn't crashed into. Um, so... Do you, when you say you, you didn't get a second chance at um, F3000, do you not count 1988? Well, yes, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And thanks, Simon, for, for pointing that out. And you can't, you can't, uh, yeah, well, yes, that was a, uh, that was a complete disaster because the car was a hideous, hideous machine. It really was. Um, but there we are. That's just the way it goes. That's an interesting thing, actually. Because, well, um, James, listening to your stories from the last podcast in 86, Le Mans, um, that, that Mazda from '83 Le Mans. What was the worst car that you drove? Because you seem to you seem to have driven some quite bad cars um, throughout such a and some obviously some great ones. But w- what was the what was the worst one? Um, I don't. I don't. You know, I've never ever thought. Of it. I always think of, oh, that was fun to drive, or we had fun there doing doing that. I, um, I think probably the most disappointing car I ever drove was the Anson F3 car. Because that that was a beautiful little thing, and it looked like it should have been really quick, but when you drove it, you couldn't really. wasn't anything wrong with it. You just couldn't go fast enough. And um, a few years after that, I drove the Lola Formula Three Thousand car. That must have been eighty-five, I reckon. And nobody the one was based on the Champ car, the Indy car tub. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Was, yeah, nobody yeah. wanted to drive it because it, it was it was rubbish. It was, so um, they gave me a chance in it, and it it was just like the Anson. And um, it wasn't really anything wrong with it. You just kept going off the end of the road. And um, years uh, years later, um, they uh, t- said what was wrong with the Lola, and it had those double angular contact wheel bearings. And when you loaded them up, it just used to tow out. So you just used to, the whole car used to steer itself off the road. And I'm pretty sure the Anson had the same thing. And for both those cars, I think I know it's not very exciting, but it's probably the wheel bearings that held them up because that Anson should have been an absolute winner. It was a beautiful little thing, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Interesting. So, so when did you d- when did you first share a car in sports cars? Oh, that was your original question, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's okay. It's all right. just Several years <laughs> ago, <laughs> um, I can remember we were in the same team in Panos, but before that with um, Rob Dyson. Yeah. Yeah, so Watkins, Glenn, I think we're in different cars, but during during '95 we must have driven together in the same car. I think the first time we won together was um, the year you made that fantastic start at Mossport. Because what what happened was we were um, we went out to qualify at Mossport and I pulled out the pits and the oil line at the front of the engine wore through on the uh, engine pulley, so it spun like a top on it on its own oil. But what happened? was um, when it, uh, you know, I realised something was wrong. So I turned the ignition off because the warning, oil warning light had come on. But that was a serious mistake because it had power steering, so you couldn't steer it. And it just sort of <laughs> nosed up against the guardrail, but it didn't do any damage. We got it fixed, put it on pole, and he started the race. It came f- up to the start. And Velez just got on it about 50 yards before Andy and disappeared off into the lead. And Rob Dyson standing and saying, well, that was a bad start, wasn't it? And of course, being a mate, he said, yeah, Governor, can't imagine what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on pole for him. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he jumped the start massively. They should have thrown a, a yellow, but they, no, they didn't. No, he did jump it terribly, <laughs> didn't he? 
Mind you, that isn't the first time I overtook the car behind me at the start, yeah. uh, or, the, or the last time. Um, but didn't we? When did we drive for Morris Urazi at Sebring? Oh, that's right. That was the first time when we all got sick. That must have been ninety four. Yes, ninety four. Ninety four and ninety four. Yeah, ninety four yeah. and five. So, uh, why, why were you all sick? <laughs> <laughs> it was nothing to do with the drink in the night before, although that probably didn't help. No, um, we. Uh, I think the exhaust uh, somehow exhaust gases were coming in, and fuel. No, it was fuel, wasn't it? Fuel fumes were coming in the cockpit, and although it was an open top car. Um, after an hour, you you just couldn't. Uh, you had to get out and throw up, didn't you? Yeah, the Exxon fuel was really ferocious. It was all the standoff out of the um, you know because a big V8 and you had the airbox just by it. All the standoff when you braked, it all got sucked into the into the cockpit. But this car, we looked at it and we thought well, it was unbelievable. Somebody had chopped the front end off just past your knees, hadn't they? And had got another and got another car, stuck it up against it, put a piece, strip of aluminium. And it all been riveted together, hadn't it? It, it, looked, it looked like a zip when <laughs> we were in front of the car. <laughs> so we think, oh, this doesn't look too good. But we got it going quite well, didn't oh, we? We did. We you obviously no, didn't refuse to drive it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and it was really, really fast. I mean, we, we, we almost won that race, didn't we? We ended up second that year, didn't we? Uh, yeah, but I think, I think, did Butch win it in the Nissan? I think he might have done. Yeah, this yeah. Nissan V6 road car sort of thing won it. And we thought, that's a bit odd. That seems extremely fast. And it turned out years later that in the rules, it said it could have, I don't know, 1.5 bar of boost. Um, but it actually had 2.5 because they got mixed up between absolute and this, that and the other. And nobody noticed, other than the fact you used to do a million mile an hour down the straight. <laughs> um, part of the reason I wanted to ask about the teammates things, we, we've got a question here from um, Jonathan Gitlin, um, who wants to know, what's the most annoying thing each of you had to put up with from the other as a teammate? Wow. R- rubbish, um, rubbish starts, yeah. maybe. Rubbish how, starts. Well, how long's the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, to be fair, I, you know, I have to say it was always a pleasure to drive with James because he's the, he's the perfect gentleman in, in the car. I mean, you can drive with uh, all sorts of different people, but quite often, especially if they've been the F1 route or the single-seater route, they're quite selfish people in the car and they want the pedals like that and the seatbelt like that and the, fight you, the fact you can't see where you're going, well, that's your own fault. Whereas uh, James was completely the opposite. You know, he, w- he would understand, as would Butch Lysinger, one of our other long-term teammates for the endurance races, is, look, you're not going to win this race on your own. You've got to make sure you're all three comfortable. And the, the thing that stood out or always does come back to my mind is that time at Road Atlanta when Butch was reading the newspaper the whole time in the motorhome because that was his, his favourite pastime. Um, James was working on the, the shocks because he's an absolute whiz with the shocks and he'd jump out of the car, roll up his sleeves, go on the shock dyno, fiddle with it until it was perfect. I did sort of springs and aero stuff. So James and I did all the work together, Butch reading the newspaper. And the really cool thing with Butch is he, he wasn't that interested in the mechanical stuff and he trusted us really well. But when you put Butch in the car... He's super quick and, and doesn't take anything out of the car, doesn't crash into people. So finally, when we got the car done, and you were still fiddling with it in the warm-up, I, I remember, we all went out in the morning warm-up when they used to have morning warm-ups. What was it? Ten minutes each. We did, I think, two flying laps each, and I think the number was 12.7. So James did a 12.7, I did a 12.7, Butch did a 12.7. Parked the car at the end of the warm-up and said, right, look around the paddock. Which other car has got three drivers who can drive exactly the same speed in it? And the answer was very, very few, if any. So that's, um, you know, that's what being a teammate's all about. You, you can be a superstar in, in a team of three people, and guess what? You didn't win. 
but you were the superstar, or you can be a real team player, which is what sports car racing really needs, and hopefully you can win some races. So no, no annoying habits at all then? Well, there are some annoying <laughs> habits. I mean, <laughs> I mean, quite a lot of them are not motor racing in, uh, related, but um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you, you have to get get on, you know, when you and um, you know, because that's one of the pleasures of sports car racing is is you know working with everybody, your fellow drivers, everybody on the team. And that's what really um, th- that's the real enjoyment of it, isn't it? You're feeling you're doing something together. As a group, it was then, it was like Dyson Racing versus the world. Yeah, so I was going to say, the, the other thing that's really nice too is when you're doing a, a 24 or a 12 or even a six-hour race, you're in the car for, say, a couple of hours and you're absolutely pushing for all you're worth. You're, you're obviously trying to win the race. Um, you're trying not to hit a slow car, but as quite often it's, it's we're talking millimetres or fractions of millimetres and you just miss people. When you finally trundle down the pit lane... And you jump out and you hand it over to one of your two teammates. It's really nice to know that when you've stepped away from the car and you've done your bit and they're out there, they're doing exactly what you did. And we always used to say to each other, look, if you crash into somebody in the end, I guarantee you if any of us were in the car, we would have done the same thing. And if you genuinely believe that, it's almost like you've got three of you driving the car. And, and that's r- I think that's rare. Maybe, maybe some of the great sports car um, groups... Uh, you could say that about, but it's it's rare. It's interesting because uh, you know, obviously, when you both started out, I think Formula One was the aim. That's that's kind of you wanted to get and drive the fastest cars and the, and the best cars out there. But listening to you speak now, I think it, it, I might be wrong, but I think you would have you're you're glad you didn't make it to F1 in a way because you had this both two incredible sports car careers and, and managed to work as a team. I'd have loved to have done Formula One. Um, you know, when you're doing Formula Ford, you, it's because they're just the fastest cars. It wasn't actually bright enough to realise if you did that, you could probably earn a lot of money as well. It was more just you wanted to get in in the fastest cars. And then when you when when that didn't happen, you looked at the sports cars, and there were some exciting cars, seven eight hundred horsepower. They, they were great, weren't they? Yeah, in fact, at that time, sports cars had more power than Formula One cars for quite a long time, didn't they? In fact. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't the fact you were demoting yourself performance-wise. I think, as you say, when you're doing Formula Ford, you're looking up at Formula One. Would it have been a, a disaster if we'd have made it to Formula One? Only the fact that we probably wouldn't have been any good. But um, I think if you've done Formula One, that stays on your record forever and you could then do sports car racing afterwards. However, we managed to get our foot in the door with sports car racing and perhaps got a real good hold of it. And, and we got the success we did because we were in there early. When you were talking a little bit earlier about how you both get very involved, hands-on with setting the car up and evolving setups and things. I mean, what do you think nowadays when you when you see instead of the drivers getting out and getting a spanner and fiddling around with shocks and dampers and stuff, that the you know, there's a bank of telemetry screens and 40 engineers doing this and 40 engineers doing that. Can you can you relate that to the kind of stuff you were doing 20, 25 years ago? I think it's surprising how how little we knew. But also, <laughs> um, well, how little how, anyone how, else knew, maybe. Uh, yeah, but that, that was actually more than some other people, which is even more <laughs> frightening. <laughs> I mean, for example, you know, like you're at Sebring in the old days, you used to go flying onto the back straight on that very fast right hander. And um, if there was too much kickback through the steering wheel on the 962 and had no power steering, I was talking to one of our Goodyear um, uh, race engineers, 
I'm chatting about the car, and he said, "Oh, you got too much high-speed rebound in it." And I went, "Oh, really?" <laughs> so we so, so we adjusted the front rebound, and it was absolutely magic. And one of the things about the Goodyear engineers, because they did so many different types of racing, um, they had a huge amount of experience from all the different disciplines. And so a lot of the time, one of the best things we ever did were the Goodyear tire tests. But it took us a while to realise they were actually a driver test. And also, it took ages to realise that probably the biggest thing on the tyre is the tyre pressure. So you could have exactly the same tyre, all to the start pressure as one pound front to rear or something, and it would feel like a completely different tyre. So it, you know, the Goodyear tyre tests were great for educating the drivers. I don't know the Goodyear ever actually <laughs> learned much from us, but they were fun, weren't they? Oh, they really were. I, I think I learned quite a lot because you could come in the pits and you could uh, change something on the suspension geometry, just something really small and feel the difference. And then if ever you were at a circuit somewhere and you had this particular problem, you could remember, ah, we did this, you know, and it's ju it just shortcuts the system. Having said that, James and I and, and Butch too, we, we worked with an engineer called Peter Weston, a um, fantastic friend of ours and, and our long-term engineer. And I think that was probably when you handed over duties to somebody higher up was the fact that we trusted Peter so much and still do. Um, you could just then explain to him what the car was doing and he'd go into his little room and put his funny space helmet on and he'd come out with the answer. So I think that was the transition. And I think now, yeah, if you're working with uh, people that have all the data and, and, and all the knowledge, of course you can, you can work it that way. But you have to go from, rather than thinking what to change, just make sure you say exactly what the car's doing. Uh, so we, we, I've got quite a lot of questions here from um, someone called Joe. Um, one, I'll, I'll come to you first, Andy. Um, the, I, I don't know whether the, there's a the story here. I, I guess there is. Um, why did Alberetto say that he would kill you every time he saw you? <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, actually, that's a really good one. And James was involved in this too. But so we were sharing a car together at Texas World Speedway. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you this? <laughs> 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 Actually, you should interject because uh, it was him who, who said that too. Um, but um, so uh, it's a it's a banked oval with an infield, and all the corners on the infield, apart from the first one, were first gear. And the first one was third gear, but really, really fast. The banking was 200 miles an hour, and then into the first corner, you actually crashed off of the banking, and the transition was quite sharp. Straight off the banking, bang onto the flat brake hard, third gear, left-hand corner, and then you had a short straight, and then first gear, short straight, first gear, blah, 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 back onto the banking. The Ferraris were really, really fast on, on the banking. So the 333, Alberetto was on pole. We were second uh, with the Riley and Scott. So at the start, uh, obviously, if I could get the lead, um, our car was better than theirs in the infield and better on traction. So I think over a lap, I think we would have been okay. So we... we it was one of the times when I actually got a pretty decent start, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I actually came around the outside of the first corner. And as we were coming up to the first right-hand first gear corner, I thought, there's a gap. I can do it. I had a bit of the old red mist coming out. Alberto's in front. And I think what he was thinking was, well, I'm a Formula One driver. <laughs> Who'd have the audacity to try and pass me? So I dived up the inside, humped on the brakes, went down into the right gear... And as I got there, I wasn't really far enough alongside him. And then he started to turn. So I thought, right, I don't. I just need to get out of the way. And I tried everything I could to get out of the way so I didn't touch him. And I couldn't. I couldn't get it stopped. I, I, I drove over the inside apex. I, ju I just couldn't avoid. It's not the sort of thing I did a lot of. To be fair, Andy, the casual observer, it looked like you nailed him in midships. Well... <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, it would look slightly different from the inside. Well, the the the, <laughs> the upshot of it was, <laughs> I did actually very lightly tap him, and unfortunately, he did a he did a three sixty, and he went to the back. I took the lead, and then uh, with both hands, and I disappeared off into the distance. It was all great. Ah, we run around and run around, and then it came to the pit stop, and we needed fuel, and ah. Our, our crew chief was, was reading down how many laps to go before fuel. And then I think about four laps to go, he needed to go to the bathroom. I say bathroom because it's America. Where everybody knows there's no bath in the bathroom. It's just a toilet. <laughs> um, and then, of course, when he came back, I don't know if his radio wasn't working. So the laps were counting down, but then they stopped counting down. And uh, so I was like, oh. So I started counting myself. And I thought, well, it must be now. must be the time to stop. But there was nobody talking to me on the radio. Um, and you, there's no pit board on a 200 mile an hour banked oval. So I came down the pit lane on my own, thinking it's time for fuel. Well, of course, when I got there, there was nobody there. <laughs> so, is this the same race, James? Yeah. So then, <laughs> uh, uh, during the pit stop, no, I just got, I ended up getting fuel, but Alberetto went past me again in the, in the melee while we were waiting for the fuel. Went back out on the track, and he's now uh, in front of me. So I, I caught up to him again, and then I got a really good run out of the uh, left-handed first gear corner onto the banking, and I got underneath him on the banking, and he went up to the banking, came back down and smashed me in the side. Uh, made me swerve about, so I ended up back behind him again. Then um, we got down to the first corner on a couple of laps later, and there was a slow car ahead, and our car was terrific off the banking, and I got such a run on him, and he went to the inside, left-hand side of the slow car, and he got pinched. So I went all the way around the outside of the slow car and passed him without touching him or anything. Except for now, there's a very angry Alberetto behind me and we're coming to a first gear corner. So it's not my first race. I know what's going to happen <laughs> next. So I, I, I broke nice and early, got it down into first gear, made sure I was completely at the right speed before I turned so he couldn't whack me. We went round this, this uh, right-hand corner and, of course, that wasn't what he was going to do. He then accelerated underneath the air jack, pulled my back wheels off the ground, and then proceeded to go through the gears, accelerating <laughs> with me with only the front wheels on the ground, until we got to the next left-hand corner, which was also first gear, and he just spat me off the end of the road, and I went spinning through the undergrowth. Anyway, so he took the lead again, and I got going again, and then the upshot of it all was, with all this stuff happening, did Wayne Taylor win? I think he did, and I think... We were second, or Alberto was second. One of us was second, one of us was third. So then I ended up doing the last bit of the race, and I ended up in Park Ferme. And then Alberto is walking along, and he walks up to James, and he says, Every time I see Wallace, I kill him. <laughs> oh, no, you, you mess it up. Because, no, 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 no. The, what oh, I remember, the he said, Where's Wallace? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah and he, did all, he said, We did all that. I said, Well, Andy might actually want to kill you. <laughs> So we then get on the podium, and uh, he, he's he's still angry. I mean, this is a, this is a fairly long race. I mean, the anger should have gone away by now, and I and I was going to apologise, but he just came up to me and he was he was really pointing his finger. He said, "Right, that's it, that's it. For the rest of my life, every time I see you, I kill you." <laughs> so that was that. But uh, yeah, but of course, the the tail end of that story is pr pretty scary, isn't it? Because we were testing at the Lausitz ring. Where, On the McKay, where McKelly was killed, yeah, yeah. and uh, so yeah, it's yeah. Um, well. There's, a there's Joe actually has a, a question for you, James, as well. Um, 
And this is, uh, he's asking, why did Wayne Taylor try to stab you in the eye with his third place trophy at Watkins Glen? <laughs> <laughs> that was a brilliant one. Well, well, I had upset him quite a lot, to be fair. Um, what happened was, we, uh, Rob had two of his Riley and Scots entered, but we were short of drivers that weekend, so he had me in both cars. And um, so we started off in one car, and I think we were running, I think you were leading, weren't you? And yes. so, and we were second or third. And then on the pit stop, I had, um, Andy's car didn't have a driver, so I got straight out of my car. And I couldn't get into the car because there were so many mechanics around. So I had to run up the nose cone <laughs> to jump in because we had both cars in the pits, no room anyway, going all right. And um, then towards, we were right at the front. Then towards the end of the race, we had a chance to win. But um, it was Butch catching up, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think Butch was catching up Wayne Taylor. And I was ahead in the other car, but nearly a lap down. So I backed Wayne Taylor into Butch. <laughs> a in bit fact, like a, Ros uh, a Hamilton. Yeah, yeah except to be, to be, I mean, he did a terrible job, quite frankly. I mean, if he had done it like I did it, you know, s somebody else could have poked him in the eye. But anyway, so I managed to back um, Wayne Taylor into Butch and Butch went round the outside of him. And um, yeah, he got really angry, didn't he? He did. And um, so we were, w the next race was Le Mans and we had to catch uh, a small plane from Umara to Philadelphia, I think was was it, and then then a plane to Le Mans because the, we were testing the next day at Le Mans. So we're I've got the rental car ready, and James was messing around doing this, that, and the other. And Wayne Taylor comes down with his trophy, with a very sharp point on the end, and he wanted to poke <laughs> James with it. <laughs> he was trying to poke James with it, and um, yeah, and uh, in the end we just said, look, Wayne, sorry, can you just poke him in the eye next week because we've got to go to Le Mans now. <laughs> and as we were driving out of the paddock, he was still waving the trophy. He yeah, he was. Brilliant. Um, I've actually got a question here from Sam Smith, um, who what, he said in the Lola design office, they had a Lola MG LMP 675 roll hoop. Um, this has seen some action, he says. It was signed by AWOL. Um, what's the story of that incident, which he believes occurred in testing? I've got the pictures on my phone if you want to see them later. But uh, we went to Mossport for a private test. Uh, with the two Dyson Racing Lolas. And it was early in the morning and my teammate was Chris Dyson and Chris was going to go out first. And in the end, he said to me, I'll tell you what, mate, you go out first. I need to book some flights. And he stayed in the pits doing that. James, you were in the other car. So unbeknownst to us, the, the winter had not been kind to the surface at Mossport. And over there's a, there's a back straight, which isn't quite straight. It's got twists and turns. And at the end of the back straight, there's a, a hump over the top of the hump, and then you have turn eight, I believe it's called. So really, really fast corner at the end. So I did a couple of uh, sighting laps. Then when I was on my first proper fast lap, as we came over the hump on my normal line, I felt a bump underneath the chassis as we went over the top. Obviously, it touched, uh, touched the road, but you're doing I don't know, 180 miles an hour or something, so you, you're going pretty quick. It's not really what you want to feel. So I thought, Ha, that's dangerous, that. So next lap, I'm not going to go on my normal line. I'm going to move to the right slightly and miss that, that big bump. Well, I missed the big bump, all right. <laughs> I found his big elder brother, <laughs> and it was unbelievable. I mean, I just, you know, I just came over the hump. As I say, 180 miles an hour. There's a bang, and a split second after the bang, I am 
really far in the air. I mean, and if you see all the cars that did the flip, Alan McNish at Road Atlanta, uh, John Nielsen in the Sauber, uh, who else did lots of flips? Lots of lots of uh, sports cars have flipped. And generally what they do is they flip over and then they do almost a complete, you know, they do more than a complete circle. And then they land on the gearbox and then they land on the wheels and everything's fine. That's normally what happens. But I think because... Well, it's something to do with aerodynamics and speed and everything. But the way we were configured here, that's not what happened. So it, it went up in the air and it got stuck completely upside down. So gearbox now facing direction of travel before takeoff. So going backwards. <laughs> and and it was really far off the ground. And I just, you know, you look down. It's an open top car, of course. And then you look down through the, and it seems so far up that the track was quite small. And, you know, you do realise that if you, come down on soft ground you're you're in big trouble with a with an open car if you come down on a hard surface you're going to be fine usually so i'm up there and i'm just I'm grabbing hold of everything so my arms are not coming out and just sort of looking down to make sure not that i could influence it in any way that i was going to come down on the blacktop and finally i did and it did the first we paced it out the first landing was 202 meters after the takeoff point and it did three um, lands upside down third one it scraped along the ground on the roll hoop, which is why there's a bit of a mess there. It then finally got to turn eight, hit the grass, spat itself back down onto its wheels, and I was going exactly the direction I was before I took off, only I hadn't gone through the corner, but still moving quite quickly at this point. But the violence of this accident was such that I thought, oh, well, that was quite lucky. So I ended the seatbelt to get out. And then I realised, oh, shit, I haven't stopped. So you can't put your seat pass back on. So I'm, I'm trying to look down, trying to stick the buckle back in because, you know, the barrier's still coming. But as it happened, it went in the gravel and it stopped way before way before the barrier. But it's uh, what I've noticed with anything that goes wrong in a car, if you don't want a tyre to go bang, if you go down the straight thinking about the tyre going bang, it never will. So all the, all the high-speed blowouts I've had, I've not been thinking about anything like that. And th- the last thing I was thinking about was flipping over backwards, but it happened so quickly. Um, and that's that. But the funny thing was, I, um, I'd gone into the pits the lap before Andy, because I went over the same bump and it hit it. And I thought, well, that's funny. I must have got the packer gap wrong. So I went into the pits just to get see if um, the boys just checked we had it set up right. And then I came back out and I was coming up the straight and I could start seeing bits of Lola. You know, it was a quarter of a mile before we got to the corner. And, and then I saw Andy standing there, so I thought I'd better stop and ask how he was. You know, n- he was just as calm as anything. He jumped on the side of my car, went back to the pits. And all the lads, they, you know, we were telling him about this accident he'd just had. And they said, well, why is he so calm? He just didn't, you know, it's just forget in his stride. Yeah, strange because it, the, the violence of it is massive. And then when it all stops, it all feels, everything feels calm, um, which is strange. But actually, I did, I got out of the wreckage and I could hear James coming down the straight. So I started to run towards, to try and stop him so he didn't go over the same you know, hump and have the same problem. But I realised I'd never get there. It's too many... I'm, I'm not um, a, a high-speed runner or anything like that. Uh, so I just went back and hid in the wreckage until James came over the top. <laughs> you, um, you, you say it happened incredibly quickly, but I bet while it was happening, I bet the world slowed down, didn't it, to crawling pace? Yeah, and that's, it, that's very interesting what you say. So what happened quickly was you're driving along, doing everything normal and then bang that split second happened quickly and then you're upside down looking down and then from that moment on it's very slow mm, yeah but how you get up there i, I mean it, it and it didn't just well it, maybe it did if you saw the video uh, if there was one but it didn't just sort of gently go up it just 
shot shot up so quickly. I mean, I don't know from talking to Mark Webber when he had his flip at Valencia um, in 2010, I think it was, uh, that he said, you know, the, the initial thing was, whoa, bang, and then he'd got all the time in the world to think about now, and he, was, he said he was trying to sketch out the track map in his mind to remember whether any bridges coming up, because he didn't know how high he was, he just knew he was upside down and off the ground, and, and just, right, okay, now I've gone past that bridge, so no, there's no bridge there, because so, he knew if he hit a bridge it was going to be bad news. And he just, but just the, the, the begin the calm way he described the whole process, but it's just like a, a two hundred miles an hour, but in slow motion. I have to say the the Lola chassis stood up yeah. fantastically. Yeah, I mean, you look at this roll hoop, and it's just made of carbon with a bit of two part foam inside. There's no metal in there at all, but obviously calculated perfectly because it's it just was a graze, wasn't it? Really. Well, we're, we were hearing recently actually from Jody Schechter that when he very first started racing, he used used to use exhaust as as uh, roll cage because it was lighter. Um, so you, you were lucky you weren't driving a car um, designed and built by him. Um, I'd just take a few more questions here. Uh, it's, well, it's not so much a question as, as just a statement. This is from Christopher Tate of Donington fame. Um, he says, Weaver and Wallace were the posh and becks of, UK, of US sports car racing. So there we go. I, I, don't, I don't know what he means by that, but um, that's <laughs> something from him. So who was the uh, posh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a message from uh, Kareem Chandhok um, to you, Andy. Uh, could you ask Andy if he would like me to bring him a top hat for Goodwood again, or has he got his own yet? What, what's going on there? Well, um, I'm, I'm rubbish at costumes and things like that, and I, we were about to go to the ball, and I didn't have a hat, and he incredibly kindly lent me his hat. Um, but the trouble is, I, it was my, my choice of the rest of the clothing, so I just looked like somebody with a very nice hat on and a rubbish other, <laughs> <laughs> other get-up. Right. But no, it was very kind of him. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so uh, for you, James, there's a question here from Matt um, from South Korea. Uh, he wants to know about the IndyCar races that you did, how they came about, and st what did you make what, what did you make of IndyCars in, in, in 89? Well, in 89, Dyson didn't know if they were going to do the sports cars or not, so they bought a second-hand Lola IndyCar um, just to do a few races and see what it was like, because Rob had always wanted to enter a car at the 500, but I was driving for David Richards' ProDrive BMW at the time, so I, I could only do three or four races. Um, but I remember the first time I drove it, I thought, oh, this is exciting. It was an absolutely fantastic thing. Loads of horsepower, big heavy car. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, was, it was great. But I was sort of, um, I, I was sort of stuck midfield, really. And we only did three or four races. And then uh, John Paul Jr. drove it and wrote it off at Meadowlands. And that was the last, last time we saw it. There's a question here from David Hopkins actually about how close you came to driving the Indy 500. I guess that kind of answers that question as well. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I didn't go because I did have a go uh, on the ovals in Indy Lights and I, I was absolutely hopeless. So I just didn't get it at all. But now looking back, I can see why I wasn't very good at it. Um, but it amazes me how good the American drivers are. And I, I would have thought a good American driver should be able to come over to Europe and, and clean up because they do, you know, particularly in the old days with Andretti, Foyt, and all those guys, they did so many different disciplines, and they're so they've got such a broad repertoire. Yeah, uh, yeah, they've always impressed me. And um, well, that that would be a beautiful segue into our Hall of Fame bit. But um, I just, there's a few more. No, the, the, but I'd, maybe I'd, I'd, maybe we could get you to repeat it in a second when um, taking a few more questions. Uh, David Hopkins actually is also asking Andy whether you can still serve as a boiler. <laughs> 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 do, do you know what? I'm not sure if it's You legal. can't still pull, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm not sure if it's legal, but I do service my own boiler, yes. Right. Okay, well, there we go, David. Um, there's a, let's go back to Matt. He had a question for you as well, Andy. Um, uh, it's, uh, he'd like to ask you about um, how you found the return to racing in the Jaguar Mark II. He had the pleasure of watching you drift it beautifully through Redgate at the Donington Historic Festival in 2015. I mean, you must have been stood there the whole race. I think I did it right once. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really strange because <clears throat> you, you always have this situation where people who are driving historics, actually probably because some of them are bitter and twisted because their career ended and now they're doing historics. It might be that. But they'll swear blind to you, oh, you need much more skill to drive an historic car. It's easy to drive a, a modern car. And I think some of it is the fault of people who are commentating on F1 and telling everybody how easy it is to drive an F1 car. What utter twaddle. I'm sorry. Modern cars are incredibly difficult to drive. Um, they're just different. They're difficult, but they're different. So... There is no such thing as an easy racing car to drive. Don't subscribe to that at all. So, again, going back to the historics, people say, oh, yeah, it's much more difficult to drive a historic because you haven't got any driver aids and you have to do this yourself and you have to do that yourself. Well, what I would say, having done now quite a bit in each one, the one big difference is with historics, you've got time. You've got loads and loads and loads and loads of time. So, yes, it's difficult to drive. You can't influence where you want to go necessarily as easily as you can in a modern car. And, yes, there are no driver aids and put your foot on the brake and it usually locks the rears and wants to swap ends. But because you've got so much time, it really doesn't matter. You know, the corner's down there. Yeah, look, I'm not stopping. I'm having a right old moment here, but never mind, the corner's down there. A modern car, you arrive down at the corner. If anything goes wrong, bang, wall, now, over. There is no time. And that's something which people will never get their head around, I think. So I, I think what, what you've just done there is explain to me exactly the difference between a, a professional racing driver and a really rubbish amateur, because I never have any time, even in the slowest historics. <laughs> <laughs> so I, think, I think that's the biggest difference there, isn't it? Well, I, I, think, I think if you grew up doing historics, you would have one version of that in your mind. But if you grew up, as we did, with these cars with lots of downforce, quite a lot of power, big slick tyres, yeah, everything happens so quickly and you have no time to think. And particularly now with modern modern carbon brakes and massive downforce and sequential gearboxes and things. Whereas, I mean, I just take the D-Type at Le Mans Classic, which I, I did last year. Fantastic car. Not very easy to drive at all, absolutely. In fact, the most difficult um, historic car I've driven to date. And you arrive down at the chicanes and you're doing 170 miles an hour in a car and you just, the corner's coming and normally you'd break around the 100 metre board or something in a, in a P1 car. If you haven't got the brakes fully on by the 300, you're not going to make it. You're absolutely not going to make it. And when you first do go on the brakes, the, the rear's locking, the car's swerving all over the place. And for probably five or maybe 10 seconds, you're convinced you're not going to make it. And you somehow thread the needle, and then you set off down to the, the next chicane, and the same thing happens again. So it's a, it's a strange, strange feeling. And you yes, you could kid yourself that, oh, you know, I'm a really good driver. I look what I'm doing. Actually, I think some of it's luck in my case anyway. But it's this time that you've got that, that doesn't exist when you drive a modern car. Um, it's, it's, I don't know if it makes sense to anybody or not. No, no but it's interesting, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, I tend to get to the old historic meeting here and there. I do see you around the paddock, mucking around with Mark IIs and D-types and things. Why don't you do any historic ra racing, Mr Weaver? Well, Explain. Every, everybody says I was historic before I started. <laughs> Um, no, I just thought when it was time to stop, it it was it, it was time to stop. Um, do you not? Do you never feel tempted when you see any of the stuff that Andy and guys like him are doing at Goodwood and other places? 
Yeah, it took me about two or three years, I think, to to get it out of my system, wanting to, um, you know, still wanting to race. But then, then I'm I'm fine now, I think. <laughs> a reformed character. <laughs> uh, I just got time for a couple more questions uh, before we go on to the Hall of Fame. Um, actually, there's one here uh, from Matt at Eastick. What was James's secret drink he drank in his drinks bottle during race weekends and once shared the recipe with Oliver Gavin? Does that? Ah, no, he's got that slightly wrong. It's we were, um, we, we tried all kinds of things in the drink drink bottle. All, uh, all totally legal, <laughs> of, of course. Um, but sadly, uh, cold water was the best. But what happened was, Ollie Gavin, um, it was Daytona 24 hours. Uh, Andy was with us, uh, Butch, and um, Rob said, "Who else?" And I said, "Well, why don't we get Ollie Gavin? Because Rob was great like that. We, you know, we, we let Andy come, uh, Tiff Nadell. Um, we had lots of people come and join us just because Rob liked them. And he said, "Well, you know, let's have Ollie." And we did. And Ollie was super fit, right? So Rob starts, you know, taking the Mickey out of us for our lack of a training <laughs> program, not taking it seriously. You know, where are you going for dinner tonight? I'll go to the Mexican, have a couple of beers, Governor. You know, and there's Ollie. You know, sorry, down the Olive Garden. You know, preparation, everything. Anyway, he had this drink, and it was the best thing ever. And Ollie was drinking it religiously before he got in the car for night practice and he set off and he was 10 or 15 seconds off the pace he was absolutely pathetic so anyway we call him into the pits and um, he sort of gets out of the car and he's, he's um, staggering around a bit so he tries to walk around the front of the car misjudges it and trips over the nose cone so he goes oh that's no problem I'll go the other way so he gets up walks around the other side of the car and headbutts the wing <laughs> <laughs> and we, we had to sort of drag him out the pit lane to get rid of him. And it turned out whatever was in this stuff was absolutely evil. He had double vision and everything. We said, well, we don't get that with a beer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how much beer you drink. I mean, dub, double vision kicks in after a while, I think. Do you know, and, and actually, I don't know, you know, I, I wouldn't know what people, you know, if people were going to take drugs and, and, and race, what on earth would you do? Because what you need is your clarity of... Judgment, and that's number one. If you, if you do anything to to change the way you you react, you'd be rubbish, wouldn't you? But the funny thing about this race was we were we were standing watching practice at the chicane. There was Rob Dice and Ollie Gavin and myself, and um, Rob says to Ollie, uh, "How many times have you done this race before?" Then. He says, well, I've never been to Daytona before. And so Rob <laughs> looks at me and says, well, why are you using somebody who's never been here before? I said, I'll, 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 um, don't, don't worry, Governor, you'll get it straight away. And I said, Ollie, it's just like Mallory Park. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, why is that then? I said, well, it's got a lake. And I said, he said, where's the lake? I said, Ollie, look, it's Lake Lloyd. It's in the middle of the, you can't miss it. And he goes, oh, oh, yes. Well, where's the lake at Mallory Park? <laughs> Oh, brilliant! Um, okay, one one final question I'll ask to ask to both of you. Um, uh, <laughs> other than each other, uh, which of your teammates did you have the most fun with? Um, Andy, I'll come to you first, and then um, come come to James afterwards. I think Butch Lightsinger, to be honest, because we we did so many long distance races together with the three of us, and we had a lot of fun. And unfortunately, I think uh, James and I are responsible for why Butch's career didn't take off more than it did. I mean, we killed it, didn't we? I think we did. No, I'd agree with Andy. You know, you know, Butch. You know, just he's just a lovely chap, totally reliable, um, great fun. He's also the first to get to the bar, isn't he? But he, he's rubbish when it comes to choosing the movies. 
Uh, this question from Jamie Smith did actually have a, a follow-up of any stories that you can share on air with this other teammate that you had lots of fun with. No, yeah, I can't. <laughs> well, the, I mean, Butch is very well read, as is Rob Dyson. We'd be sit, we, again. It was the same weekend with Ollie Gavin. We were sitting in the motorhome, and Rob and Butch were discussing um, what sort of uh, what they'd been reading. And it was very, it was quite a highbrow conversation. I thought, well, I'll just keep quiet. And Ollie <laughs> couldn't contain himself, and he blurts out in the middle of the conversation, "I read a book once." And we go, "Oh, really? What was that then, Ollie?" He goes, "It was about Stalin." I think, "Oh, well, that's easy enough." What did it say? He couldn't remember, and he and he just he just completely froze. And eventually, he goes, um, "I think he liked classical music while he was having his dinner." <laughs> <laughs> that was all he got from the book. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, right, we do, we we must come to the Hall of Fame. Um, we have asked lots lots of the questions, um, so thank you for sending those in. Um, so the Hall of Fame, I, we briefly went through it before we came on air, but uh, the premise of the next ten to fifteen minutes is to come up. Uh, with 12 names that the public can then vote on from uh, US racing, whether that's drag racing, sports cars, Indy cars, NASCAR. Um, and I'll just read out who we had last year as the 12 nominees. We had AJ Foyt, Mark Donahue, Parnelli Jones, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Sr., Cale Yarbrough, Dan Gurney, who went on to win it, Roger Penske, Richard Petty, Bill France Sr. and Jr. as one, and then Rick Mears and Al Anser Sr. So, obviously, Dan Gurney was voted... Um, to the, mo the most popular out of all, of all of those by the public, so he won it. So we first of all need to replace him with another name, um, and then question some of the other names, which maybe didn't get so many votes. Um, interesting, I'm actually going to start um, with AJ Foyt, um, because didn't he call you a goddamn asshole? <laughs> yes, he did on, on, on national TV. It was my first um, IndyCar race at Long Beach. And uh, we, uh, we, I was down, I think we were down near the back, like sort of 15th to 16th place. And I was stuck behind AJ and he, he smashed into the wall and bent all his suspension. And so, you know, being a professional racer, I thought, oh, this is great. This is my opportunity. So coming out the next corner, um, I got up alongside him. But he decided to come into the pits, and the pits was on my right, he was on my left, so he turned sharp right. And um, I just managed to s sort of, um, well, I hit him slightly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't very pleased, so he sort of blamed me for his, his retirement from the race. But um, I, I know him from the sports car days, because um, Rob Dyson drove with AJ Foyt in, in his 962 at Sebring a couple of times. What a character. I mean, I, I could probably understand about one word in four or five of what he said, but talk about your, the genuine larger-than-life character. It would have to be him. I mean, I'd, I, have to say, I would say that AJ Foyt is, is a name that has to be in this list. There's no way you can have a, a list of American I mean, racing names. Despite AJ Foyt's obvious error in trying to take out James Weaver on the way into the yeah. pits, I think despite that, that. That, that one little glitch. Now, I think, I mean, every, everything he achieved, uh, winning Le Mans four indie wins and so on and so forth and you know success as a team owner success in nascar yeah is there anything he didn't do apart from formula one no he's, he's no. got to be on the list it's nice to have a bit of perspective isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you do you, you not uh, disagree with foyt or no no that no yeah. that sounds okay that sounds well at least right, we have yeah. one tick um i'll cross out dan gurney uh, since, since he's off the list um I, we were talking earlier jim hall as a possible replacement for for dan gurney um james you were keen to have Jim Hall on the list, just talk us through. 
you know, I think if you look at everything he he did with the Chaparral, the, the way they tested the car, designed it, the ideas on it, the fan car, automatic gearboxes, movable wings. I mean, he, he was literally 40 or 50 years ahead of his time. So absolutely has to be there. Um, Andy, are there, are there any names that you'd particularly like to put forward or um, sort of cement in, in the nominees list? Does it have to be somebody sports car racing? No, America is the theme. Well, the one that's the, the glaring one that's missing is Jimmy Johnson. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, incredibly talented, multi, multi-time um, NASCAR champion. But I did get to to drive with him at Daytona in the twenty-four hours, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know he's going round and round in circles in a great big metal box, but they also do road courses but he took to a proper sports car very very quickly and and you can see what a class act he is so yeah he, he looks like yeah. he's missing off the list um yeah, yeah. Is it, was he was he very quick when he was in a sports car i mean he, you said he obviously took to it very quickly he, but. yeah well he picked it up yeah he picked it up incredibly quickly um I'm just trying to think now if he was in my car or not. This is when, when being almost 56 begins to <laughs> cloud you. We were in the same team together. I drove with, one year I drove with Tony Stewart and uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Um, I have a feeling Butch was driving with uh, Jimmy Johnson, but we're all in the same uh, the same group. And yeah, he, he did a fantastic job. The, the one that did make me laugh was actually Rusty Wallace. Because he, before he went out in the car, these were the Daytona prototypes, he said, um, I'm actually going to go off on every corner before I know exactly you know, what's, what's where the limit is and what's happening. And I thought, well, that's really stupid. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, surely you'd know after the first spin what was going on. But he was actually, you know, he was completely serious. And I was in the other car and I actually followed him uh, through the infield one time. And he came into the corner far too fast, stuck a couple of wheels on the grass and spun. And that was the last time he spun on that corner. <laughs> he, ju- he just mentally had to tick all these things off. Um, but I don't think he wasn't as fast as, as uh, Tony Stewart or Jimmy Johnson. But, um, but it just because he was too busy crashing. Well, but I mean... <laughs> couldn't, couldn't put a single lap time in. He was always spinning at one corner. <laughs> but I mean, he didn't disgrace himself. So I mean, in the end, he did exactly what he said. He went off in every corner and he got the hang of it and he drove the, the 24 hours. It was it's a very interesting way of doing these things. Yeah. Um, I did, well, Jimmy Johnson, I mean, he, he has been so dominant for so long. Um, um, and the number, uh, I mean, uh, number pardon, of race wins and championships. Pardon um, my ignorance of NASCAR there. titles, but I think it's seven, isn't it? Now he's got. Yeah. And um, and on, on a similar note, um, and seven NASCAR titles alone should you know qualify for a place on the list. But on a similar note, I mean, Jeff Gordon has just, as we speak, I was at Daytona a couple of weeks ago, great privilege, and he was part of the winning team there. And I mean, he was on the list last year, great success in NASCAR. But I mean, everyone has always said that had he had the opportunity to race in single seaters in the European ladder, he was good enough to have embraced it and gone on to have a great career. And I, th- I, th- I mean, I think he he kind of transcends motor racing in, in America, certainly in America is a household name. And I, th- I think I think he... So Jeff Gordon, uh, do, do we think, give him a tech? Agreed? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, sounds good. But the, the other thing to point to make about stock car racing is just how incredibly difficult it is because the cars are in the corner for such a long time. They're massively heavy. The, t- the regulations don't allow the tyres to be big enough. So to engineer or drive a stock car is, is incredibly difficult to be successful. It's a really tough discipline. Yeah, I mean, you only need to look at some of the names that have gone into NASCAR racing. It hasn't worked for them. I mean, Frank Kitty has 
you know, springs to mind as obviously this hugely talented guy that just didn't didn't work. I mean, there's obviously a very different discipline, isn't it? Um, and, and Montoya as well, because I mean, he fantastically gifted single seater racers, if not necessarily the most applied at all times. But I mean, he scored a couple of NASCAR wins on road courses. I don't think he won on an oval, did he? Or maybe he did. But he, I mean, he, you know, for somebody that gifted, you'd have expected him to transition better than perhaps he did. Mm. And actually, on, on that uh, note. Driving with a couple of the NASCAR guys uh, at Daytona in the 24 hours. Now the banking's easily flat, not even a, don't give it a thought. But just looking at some of the sector times or exit speeds from corners or the traces and the data, you could see that the really good NASCAR guys could go through what they call NASCAR 3 and 4 on the banking quicker than I was going through there. And I'm flat. And obviously it's to do with line and everything. And I thought I was taking the right line, trying to miss the bumps and everything. And it's just the feel they have for the minutest amount of um, unnecessary drag on the car, uh, friction drag. So they just they just have a feel for where to go, and they just come out of the bank in two miles an hour quicker. I mean, over a lap they're not quicker because it's not their discipline. But just looking at the the data, how you know where did you find those couple of miles an hour? And it's just purely that. And another one, if we've got time, uh, a quick one is at um, Homestead. The, the banking at Homestead is um, 18 degrees on the bottom, 19 and then 20 on the top. When you use the infield, uh, you come out of the infield right after what would be NASCAR 2. You go all the way down the back straight and then you go through 3 and 4 and then down the front straight. Every time you go into that corner, you, you're arriving very, very quickly, probably 165, 170 miles an hour. It's a flat out corner, but every time you get part of the way through, you lift off because you think you're going to crash. It's a really, really odd feeling, and it's because the banking's not really that steep. All the forces, the ones acting through the top of your head, everything's telling you, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, I'm sideways. And you lift, and you keep going through the corner. And I couldn't do it flat. And then I was speaking to one of the um, oval specialists. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we always have that problem. All you've got to do is go into the corner and just keep looking at your hands. And if you're still turning left, you're not sideways. And it sounds obvious, but all this, everything that you've got in your body is what keeps you pointing the right direction. And when that's messed up, it's like somebody's put some tape over one eye or something. So I just did that. Off you go, through the corner, it's a piece of cake flat. Just look at your hands. And just ignore what you're feeling. And obviously just make sure you switch the, the ignoring back on <laughs> or back off when you come to the next bit of the corner. But it's funny, these guys, obviously, it, it looks, people who don't understand over racing, and I don't understand it at all, but... You see these cars going round and round and round. You go, well, how difficult can that be? But actually, to get those little bits and to be successful is, is incredibly difficult. Actually, the Goodyear tyre engineer told me how to fix that because I was having trouble picking a line through there. And he says, everybody has that trouble. What you've got to do is put a little bit more low-speed front rebound in and then you can steer it inch perfect and you wonder why you ever had a problem. Insight as well. There's, there's everything in this podcast, isn't there? Um, talking of... Uh, NASCAR, Dale Earnhardt Sr., I don't think you can have a list of US names, American names, without him being on it. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, I don't think you can leave Dale Earnhardt Sr. And, and he's got a phone call, I think. His new Bugatti's no, been delivered. No, um, he, he's fan he was um, fantastic. And the, his ability to slipstream is, is quite extraordinary, because I know they called him the Intimidator. Yeah, is because when he over when he slipstream past, you go past them really, really close, and everybody thought he was just you know showing them who was in charge. But what he was doing, he was he'd stay till he hit the bow wave, and then suddenly pull away from the car he was overtaking, and he would make the car he was overtaking stop. 
and he was one of the first people to figure that out because you know in NASCAR if you get behind the car in front and drop your car down you can take the air off the back of the car and as the Americans say loosen them up make them oversteer so where you put your car compared to the car in front or the airflow and those big um, sort of groups if you can understand that you've got it cracked and he was the past master I think even 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 that fact alone, even if he hadn't won a million NASCAR yeah. races, would yeah, be yeah. would be enough to put him on. Well, the list. I'll put a tech next to his next to his name. Um, are there any other names anyone wants to throw in at this stage? Because um, I might put one forward, and that's John Force, or in, in fact the entire Force family. Um, and uh, you know, drag racing is, you know, for us over here is a sort of a, a niche sport, but it's huge in America. And what he what John Force has managed throughout his career um, is amazing, and yeah, that, you um, know, his whole family does it. When we were discussing the American Hall of Fame things last year with Dario Franchitti in this very same room, I think we all felt that although we were swamped by significant names and worthy names, I think we all felt that we had made a bit of a an omission by not having at least one drag racing candidate for the very reasons you say. Don Garlitz also springs to mind. I mean, there, there are lots, but it. I mean, I love going to Santa Pod from time to time, but. It's a major ambition to get to an NHRA race in the States. Just see this. Have you guys been to one? Or did, did you come with us that time with uh, Pat Smith to, is it Lebanon Valley? Yeah. 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 That, that was unbelievable. And John Force was there then. Yeah. And it was only, they weren't racing that weekend, but there were a lot of other races and he just did a demo in the, yeah, the big funny car. That's unbelievable. You, you put earplugs in with these funny cars and you know the people are watching you put earplugs in and thinking, <laughs> what's he doing? That's not where the noise comes from. It comes from the ground, up through your legs and into your rib cage. Yeah, <laughs> it, it actually it, it, it moves all your internal organs. <laughs> um, I was lucky or unlucky enough to have a ride in the two-seater two dragster at Santa Pod. And it's it, compared to sort of top fuel dragsters, it's, it's comparatively extremely slow, but you're still doing the standing sort of quarter mile in, I think oh, we did it in 7.8, 7.7 seconds. Um, and putting aside the fact that the radiator cap blew off as we did our initial burnout and then went down the back of my neck. Um, when we actually finally did the run, the first three seconds, I, I just couldn't breathe. And then the last three seconds, I was just laughing hysterically. Um, and it's, but how they drive these top fuel cars that do, you know, the standing quarter in what, four seconds, 300 and whatever miles an hour. Amazing. Anyway, so I, I think John Force should, yeah, think should absolutely be in there. <coughs> um, so I, I, I know we're, we're running over time here, but... Um, well, I was going to say, actually, more interesting than that is when they pull the chute. You know that it's about 8G, isn't it, a diesel? Yeah. And they were having problems with detached retinas. So what they do, just before they pull the chute, you close your eyes and then put your head down before you pull the chute. And that was the antidote to that. So you have to close your eyes at about 330 <laughs> miles an hour. Approximately, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> But the, obviously, the, 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 they run on nitromethane, um, which emits sort of an equivalent of tear gas when, they, when it's fired up. And so when they're firing up the top field, then, you know, they've got proper masks on and things. Um, and apparently you can always tell the newbies to a, to a drag racing meeting because they all come and they're like, oh, the engine's fired up. And after about 10 seconds, they, they all walk away crying. <laughs> <laughs> See, learn that it's, but it's an incredible sport. Okay, so John Force, I, th I think, should be in there. Um, Richard Petty is, is another one. He's, uh, surely he's a given. I think you know yeah, the, the amount that he yeah. that he has think done Rich, and, and still does. Sticking with the same initials, Roger Penske as well. I don't. You just can't. No. You can't not yeah, have Roger okay. Penske on there. So uh, how many have we got? Now? We got Jimmy Johnson, AJ Foyt, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Senior, Roger Penske, Richard Petty, John Force, Jim Hall. 
So we've got another four to choose. Um, shall I throw some names at you um, who, who, who not are back on the list yet? Mark Donahue, Ponelli Jones, Kale Yarborough, Bill France Senior and Junior, Rick Mears, Anansa Senior, and then there's Ralph De Palmer and Don Garlitz. Um, that's, uh, there's a lot of big names in that list that are not on there yet. Um, I, I mean, he was the first name I introduced last year, and I'll stick with him again because I, he's such a, an unusual character in the annals of racing history, Mark Donoghue, just for what he did as a racer, as an engineer, um, success in Trans Am, Can Am, uh, single seaters, won Penske's first Daytona 500, he won Penske's first Indy 500. Um, you know, hugely gifted individual and a brilliant engineer as well. Um, and a major factor in what helped Penske Racing become Penske Racing. Yeah. Mark Donahue, is there any, any arguments? Yeah? Okay. Yep, definitely. Excellent. So now we did three more. Um, I, I would say, well, Parnelli Jones uh, and mm, Rick Mears, two very good names. Um, what do you think? I'm going to throw it to the floor. This is a great thing about hosting this, is that I don't actually need to make any decisions. I well, I, I, mean, <laughs> firmly, I, I, I was going to shut now, now, now Mark Donoghue's on the list, I was going to shut up, actually, and leave it to Oh, great, okay. Well, you still haven't talked about Ralph De Palmer, actually, who was your <laughs> tip last time. Well, again, I mean, he was, it's just, he was, I mean, we're going back to, uh, you know, 40, 50 years before any of us was born, um, particularly you, but, uh, I mean, the three older ones here were, it was way before our time, but he just, an Indy 500 winner who had a fantastic track record. I think he, I can't remember the number, I did have it last year. A three-figure number of race wins, I think, on, on the old board tracks and stuff in the early part of the um, 20th century. Uh, and not many people know a huge amount about him, but he, he was just very, very successful in period. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you what, from the, from the likes of Ponelli Jones, Bill France Senior Junior, Rick Mears, Alonso Senior, Ralph De Palma. Um, why don't you give me a name, James, who you think should definitely be in there? And actually, I'll ask you for a name, Andy, and then I can ask you for a name, Simon, and then we have 12 people. Look at that. Maths I, as well. I would go with um, Rick Mears, because I mean, he had some horrific accidents, always bounced back, always competitive. Um, yeah, I, rem I remember watching him on telly, and it definitely got to admire his skill and his courage. And again, he's another one who could have been, I mean, he tested an F1 car. But, yeah, very, apparently very he was very quick extremely in a quick yeah. when, he, when he did test it. Interesting, yeah. okay. Andy, so do you have left um, Ponelli Jones, also feel free to throw in other names as well that I, I'm not mentioning. Um, Ponelli Jones, Bill France Senior and Junior, Alonso Senior, Ralph De Palma. Well, James took the win right out of myself because I was going to say Rick Mears as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, Alonso Senior probably for a similar reason. Um, but uh, I was going to say, we should throw it across to Simon because, I mean, we, we've got our own little sort of narrow focus of motorsport, whereas you've got this massive encyclopedia of everything yeah. to do with Mostly motorsport. Mostly useless encyclopedia. Yes, no, no, no. All, almost <laughs> all of it useless and an awful lot of it about Alton Park. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well, Alan Cecenia, I, you get, I don't think you're going to argue with No, 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 argue, okay. no argument. Um, okay, well, Simon, I will give you the, the final name then. Who'd, who would you like to put on those? Um, it's Parnelli Jones... Kale Yarbrough, Bill France Senior Junior, Ralph De Palma, or a another who we haven't even talked about yet? Um, I think all are equally worthy, but I would say that we've got several NASCAR drivers 
on the list and NASCAR wouldn't exist without the France family and you guys know what it's like when you you come it doesn't matter how many times you've been to Daytona as you come down the International Speedway Boulevard and see the thing looming up on your right and then about five hours later it's still it's still there I mean it's just it is the most impress it's the most, most impressive structure and that's all come as a result of the initial endeavours following the early beach races and so on of um, of the France family so I, I think Bill France senior junior um, yep. for, what, for what they've done for American motorsport if I was going to add one name to the list it would be cigarette companies <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Politically correct yeah go on because no seriously if you look at the success of Formula One um, the Camel GT, the, what NASCAR, which was the Winston Cup, if it wasn't for the marketing dollars and expertise of the cigarette companies, the sport wouldn't be what it is today. But, but without the vision of the France family, then the cigarette companies would have had nothing to exploit, so I think they take priority. I'm sticking with the cigarette companies. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm I, a smoker. I, I have a suspicion that if, if, I'd, um, if we finish this, this podcast and I go downstairs and, and they ask for who the nominees are, and I say um, uh, AJ Foyt, Mark Donoghue, uh, the cigarette companies. Mr. Philip Morris. <laughs> I think I might be sent back up here to do this again. Um, so, I'd, well, Bill Front, Senior Junior, I absolutely wouldn't disagree with that. No, sound, that? sounds yeah, good yeah. to me, yeah. yeah. I, w- I would say, as impressive as Daytona International Speedway is, and it is, what you have to be very careful of is when you come in through that, uh, the the original tunnel, drive-through tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, every time we used to go through there, it's quite narrow and you come down and then as you come out, you sort of come up this hill and then it goes level again. And I'd been going through this tunnel and I thought, you know what, I reckon you could probably get airborne if you came out of the tunnel fast enough. So <laughs> I, I got down into, there was nobody in front of me, everything was all good and, and I was young enough and stupid enough to not think that there might have been somebody parked the other side. <laughs> And I came... Or spectators. Absolutely, or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, it was a test trolleys. day, though, so it was not any <laughs> spectators there so much. I came flying out of this tunnel, and I definitely did get airborne. I was a long way off the ground. The only small You went in a low No, I was just in my <laughs> rental car. The only small problem was that there was a, um, a policeman there with his police car <laughs> parked <laughs> on the right. And as I came up out of the tunnel airborne, he didn't have a sense of humour, no. No, we had a conversation in the car park when he caught up with me. But uh, yeah, so yeah, so I would say that was a bad design, that tunnel. Actually, talking about police cars, I remember Miami was with Mike Eastick and um, Jonathan Palmer was driving for him and we came out of the underground car park. This must have been 83 or 4. And Jonathan wondered why I was going so slowly because I was going to let him follow me. The reason I was going slowly was there was a policeman sat there and there was a lot of traffic. So Jonathan nosed up behind me flattened the throttle he filled the car park up with tire smoke and i just slowly <laughs> crept past the police with my foot hard on the brakes and he just looked at it shaking his head uh-huh. brilliant um well I'm, we're already way over time um so i'm sorry for keeping you both um but we're, we can we can go and grab some lunch now um and i'm sure the stories will follow thank you so much for for joining us and for helping to choose 12 names so we have um, AJ Foyt, Mark Donahue, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Sr., Roger Penske, Richard Petty, Bill France Sr. and Jr., Rick Mears, Anunser, John Force, Jim Hall, and Jimmy Johnson, which you can now vote on. Um, we have t- come up with nominees for Formula One, sports cars, motorcycles, and now US racing. So it's up to you. You decide who is going to be in the Hall of Fame this year. Um, Simon, thank you so much. 
Alan, thank you so much for doing all your beautiful recording as, as per normal. I do always thank you before we've actually finished recording and you've told me it's gone all right, but I now, I now just presume it. Um, thank you so much, Andy. Thank you so much, James. Pleasure. Um, we will see you Pleasure all soon for, an, for another Motorsport podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for watching. Bye-bye. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.